Psychedologist. Duncan Autry is a conflict transformation catalyst and educator, and my dear, dear friend. He says, I believe that it is possible to create systems of communication and interaction that allow people and organizations to thrive and evolve through complexity and diversity, as opposed to rigidly crumbling under those same forces. So Duncan considers himself an agent of peace, working primarily in Spanish and English-speaking countries in North and South America. He has extensive knowledge of state-of-the-art strategies, tools, and technologies for facilitating groups in conflict, or groups with a desire to have conversations that are transformative, productive, and coherent. He comes on the show today to talk about following the yes train and his three rules of conflict, but there are actually four, and the arc of conversation, acknowledge, reflect, and be curious. We go into epistemology versus ontology and how that sort of approach to conflict in the psychedelic community might be beneficial, like not what is true, but like, what do we do holding both of those? And uh, we talk about the drug war and police stops. Duncan shares a personal experience of being arrested after um, uh, an illegal search by police in the summer of 2017. We talk about cognitive liberty and his podcast and site Fractal Friends we talk about the prison strike, and he has lots of great information about that on his website. I'll let you hear the rest for yourself. Welcome, everyone. Duncan Autry on The Psychedologist. Hey, Duncan. Welcome to the show. Hi, yeah, Thank you. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Um, just remembering the first time I heard your voice so many years ago when we were linking up to talk about camping together for Oregon Eclipse, and we realized that we were both going to be at Fractal Fest in New York, right? Totally, yeah. I was in New York City, and like I hadn't been there. I was walking around on the streets. And uh, yeah, we were just like, kind of like, both of us were kind of frantic because we were both trying to like go do this thing. And we were like, okay, I'm going to be away this weekend. Like me too. And like, what? And then, and then we both figured out that we were like literally in the same place. Um yeah. Well, I think we also bonded about Duncan Trussell there. I was remember wearing a Duncan Trussell t-shirt and then you started talking about Duncan Trussell and I was like, what? So it's good. <laughs> <clears throat> it's like easy to be like, oh, it's such a small world. But really, we're from like the same microcosm of like festival going cognitive liberty enjoyers of podcasts. Exactly. It's yeah, it's, you know, good people find good people. It's really amazing how wonderfully that works in this world. Shout out to Adele for helping us find each other. Yeah. Hi, Adele. <laughs> <laughs> Across the pond. So, yeah. Um, and then you were uh, planning this incredible talk, which I saw you give at Fractal Fest called The Fractal Nature of Conflict, right? Exactly. It's actually a fun story how I got there. I was at this, um, it was an event that one of my friends was organizing and it was, it was like February of that year. What was that last year, I guess. And he and we were at the workshop and the, the event was like a discussion about creating values for the new culture. And it was like basically like, let's think about what are the values of the culture that we want to live in and what would those look like? And it was like 30 people, a really amazing conversation um, and like met some new friends there to kind of opened up a whole world for me. And this one guy was like, I do an event called Fractal Fest and I 
had actually designed a whole workshop to take to Oregon Eclipse. And they had just closed down the like place where you could apply it to do the workshop. And so I had missed the opportunity to give the workshop at Oregon Eclipse. And I was just really bummed about it. And then to find out that there was an event called Fractal Fest where I could go give the fractal nature of conflict talk at Fractal Fest. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. I have to go do this. And it was like a great example of just like following the yes train, you know, like, I don't know if I need to go to New York. This is going to cost me money. I don't know if this is like going to be worth my time, you know, to do this. But, you know, sometimes you just got to say yes to things. And like this friendship is definitely part of that. And all sorts of other things came out of that experience. Your talk on conflict was the first time I actually learned about conflict. And now it's, I feel it's central to everything that I'm doing. And in this psychedelic community, I see that this like, this elementary understanding of conflict isn't even there in a lot of cases. And we're approaching conflict with ego and um, no, just elements of patriarchy, the very things we're trying to get rid of patriarchy, supremacy of various kinds and, um, and just hate and closed mindedness. It's like, it's all uh, showing up, I think, in what attempts to be conflict, conflict resolution, but ends up being conflict perpetuation. Yeah, and it's conflict is a very, it's a very tricky thing. I sometimes I've tried to think about if we can like give it a new name because conflict has such a bad name. But like my like thing I always like to point out is that conflict is this opportunity to like see what people care about the most. I would call it like an opportunity to thrive because if you're in conflict with someone, especially a con- like what we think of as conflict where someone's like emotionally activated about a situation or they're having like strong feelings about it or people are fighting or arguing, like what that means is that we like now somehow have discovered like a direct line right into that person's heart. And the reason why they're so activated is because that feels vulnerable. And it's scary. And so they need to defend like that that part of their heart. Um, but what's neat then is once you realize that you have access to that person's heart, if you can then hold that thing you've discovered like in compassion and like care for that part of them, then you get to like really meet them. Like you get to really meet them. And also, conversely, you can also have that a part of your heart get met, right? You know, and it's like that part that you're trying to protect. Um, and it's the reason why conflict goes so hard sometimes is because these things that we care about so much, um, like it feels really threatening to like, let them be exposed. But it also, there's this illusion that if I care for your heart, that somehow that's like losing my own, you know, like I'm like, you know, like, and so my, usually the temptation is, is to like really try to like shut down you so that I can be safe. But as I shut down you, then you shut down me. And then now we're like, both don't feel safe. And now we're stuck, right? And so flipping conflict around so that you can see like, hey, this is an opportunity for us to have like a really important conversation is like a, is a, is a real trick. And it takes like a whole new way of thinking to look at it that way. That was one of the major points, right? Conflict is an opportunity. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I like to sort of like conflict is an opportunity. It's, um, it's like this dance, like between the self and other, right? And it's like always this tension of um, basically like conflict. Uh, this guy, Adam Kahane, like boils it down to a sentence. All conflict is basically I have a great idea to share with the world, 
But in order to do it, I have to do it with other people. <laughs> and these other people also have their own ideas, right? And people have different ideas. And now we're like, now we have a, a situation to have to sort out. And so this like this dance of self and other, it's like we have to be in relationship with people. We can't just do things on our own. But we also don't want to so much focus on what the needs of others are that we shut down our own experience, right? And so we both need to like somehow learn how to speak up for what we care about and like advocate for ourselves and like put our voice into the world and figure out how to care for other people who are trying to do the same thing. And and like and those in a certain way are like it, it seems they're they're opposites, right? Like like for me to create space for you, like means that I have to slow myself down. We can feel that in this conversation, right? Like like I, you can't we can't talk at the same time. So either I'm taking up the space or you're taking up the space, right? And I want to make sure that you're here, and I want to make and but I also want to make sure that I get my voice out there. And so, um, and so it becomes this dance of like listening and speaking. Right. And, and, and that, and it becomes more like breathing because like I can now take up some space, but then I'm going to need to, for this to be a useful conversation, I'm gonna have to stop and allow you to speak up and, you know, ask whatever question you're interested in or say whatever thoughts are on your mind. And then it becomes something that's generative, right? Like now we're creating a whole new thing that couldn't have existed with one of us just by ourselves. <clears throat> yeah, I, have been like thinking about this breathing or this dance a lot lately since um, my partner moved in with me, Matt, and we were in a lot of conflict and we were like butting up against each other in some really like basic and kind of, um, I don't know, unsophisticated ways, I guess, just like littlest mm -hmm. things. And, and I knew that there was some deeper thing going on, but it was just like the stupidest shit would ruin our day. And um, one thing that we started doing was like one person talks and there's no, it's not a dialogue. It's just like a monologue. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> and then while that's happening, the, the listener, you know, they may be triggered, they may be not triggered, but whatever it is, it's just like, hold on until the end. And then usually by the time the person speaking is has finished it's like it's coming out a lot less defensive it's coming out um it, it's it's more of like a, a whole package instead of like a little bit that's it's and then it's like you have to fire back a response you know like like a tennis match or something instead it's like weaving a pattern and then like giving it over and then the, the whole pattern is visible and that was that was like such a huge breakthrough when we started doing that and stopped going back and forth yeah, that's like a really powerful methodology. And, and, and again, like for people who are trying to manage their own conflict, just without getting help from someone else, like that's a great place to start is like, just create space for like, just create space for uninterrupted conversation. Right. And, and let that person really share. And while the other person practices good listening. And, you know, one of the things I talked about in that workshop is that listening is Basically, that's like, that's the take home. If you like want to like resolve conflict, learn how to listen better. And the aspects of listening that I like to point out, I actually call it like the arc of conversation. It's a mnemonic here: A R C. So A stands for acknowledge. Like acknowledge that whatever this person's going through, that you can see it, you can understand it, you can um, imagine 
what they're going through. Like empathy comes in here, but just being like, wow, I see that this is hard for you. I understand you're freaked out. I can see it seems like, you know, like just acknowledging. And the R stands for reflecting. So you can actually just reflect back what the person's saying. You can just, and this is, I mean, it seems like a little forced sometimes, but really you can just say, oh, okay, so I understand like, so you and Matt have like come up with a system where one of you will just talk, the other person will listen, regardless of what's happening, and that's really helping out for you, right? And then you're like, wow, I feel really heard, and like, and that could be really helpful, just reflecting back. And, you know, there's a little trick with that, is you have to work, like, you can't get caught up in whether or not you reflected it back correctly. Like, they'll, they'll, like, if you don't get it right, they'll correct you, and now you get to listen again. And sometimes they'll actually be like, no, that's not what I said, but you are, you know, that is what they said. (laughs) And then they're just going to correct themselves. But reflecting back, like really is a place of refining that because then the person knows that you've heard them and then they can sort of stop trying to say the thing they're trying to say. And then the last part is like just being curious. And that's what the C stands for. It's just ask, like it's basically ask questions like how long have you been feeling this way? Or like, what does this happen? Or like, you know, do you, like what what's going on for you or tell me more about that? Like just those kinds of questions that sort of just show like you're actually paying attention to the person. And what's the fun about listening and, and it's powerful about it is that it's actually the quickest way to get them to start listening to you. Like if you can exhaustively listen to someone and make sure that you've heard them all the way through, then usually they'll be like, ooh, wait, I want to wait, what were you going to say? You know, like, and th- like, then they'll like be ready to listen to you. But if you're like, cut them off before they're ready, which is why that back and forth is like really not very effective. Um, yeah. So listening is really important. <laughs> um, yeah. There's another thing about what you said. I know I'm just like going on a little speech here, but like, I'm listening. Um, <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, that you mentioned like, you know, like, you know, that these little things you're talking about are petty and maybe there's like something more going on. And that's what I call the first rule of conflict is that like, it's not about what it's about. Like generally, if you're like fighting about the dishes or like what time someone got home or they didn't text you, like, it's not about any of those things. It's about respect. It's about awareness. It's about, you know, some other deeper feelings. And so like finding out what those are is important. And that's part of why we listen. Yeah. Find the root. Find the root. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. would you like to go on and tell the other parts of the? I mean, we're on we're on the uh, yes train here. Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So, um, yeah. So you know, over the time, the years that I've been working, worked in this conflict resolution field, I've I've come like I've kind of discovered what I call the three rules of conflict and the fact that it's not about what it's about is like always my favorite because it's always like are you sure and like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh I don't know what you're fighting about but it's something else for sure and um because that's where like that that thing where it's like that what's in the heart right you know like you know people are fighting about the fences or they're fighting about dogs barking or they're fighting about some sort of like contract that went sour like those are all things you might not have to deal with but no one's getting emotional about that stuff. They're getting emotional about something that feels like deeply threatening to their heart. So finding the needs are really important. And the second rule of conflict 
is that whoever is involved in the conflict is going to have to be involved in the resolution of the conflict. You can't exclude someone from the process. Um, and there's like a follow-up to that rule that if you don't, if you don't um, include them, then they're going to include themselves on their own terms, right? So like if you try to exclude someone from a process, they're going to come protest or they're going to come undermine whatever it is you're trying to do. And and this is like a tricky one because like a lot of times it's really tempting to just like, let me just talk to the people who I agree with and see if we can come up with a solution to this problem. And then everyone's like, yay, we know the answer. And like, now let's go tell the other people what solution we came up for them. And, you know, it's like no one wants to do that. It's never it never works. You know, um, I actually want to speak to that. <clears throat> yeah, I think that that's another thing I see in the psychedelic community is kind of insulating our insulating I'm not doing it. I I like to speak for myself, but I'm (laughs) going to see what I see other people doing is insulating themselves with those who share their, their perspective. And then there's, there's just like no listening going on to the other perspective because there's so much agreement. I have so much agreement already with mine and my perspective is validated. It is true. And uh, there's a conference in New York city called horizons every fall. This was the 12th year. And it's a great conference because on Saturday they have a lot of academic talks and research findings, and it's more um, <clears throat> uh, not that the Sunday one isn't empirical, but it's just like more I would call it psychedelic science, mm-hmm. whereas Sunday is more like psychedelic humanities. And there this year the the lineup was simply unbelievable. I mean, I even have the hang on one sec. I'm going to get the pamphlet. Yeah. Okay, so on Saturday, for instance, there were research findings on psilocybin-facilitated treatment for cocaine use, microdosing, phenomenon research results, and startling surprises, dynamics of brain activity induced by DMT, new findings on the therapeutic potential of ayahuasca, research results on the MDMA trials for PTSD, and also going into the therapist's experience of that. And of course, they go through their own MDMA session. Race-Based Trauma, The Challenge and Promise of MDMA-Assisted Psychotherapy by Dr. Monica Williams, who is heading up the Phase 3 trials in Connecticut. Um, And they're mostly serving, I think they're completely actually serving people of color. And her research is into race-based trauma. That is Um, awesome. I'm so excited to hear about how that goes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's huge. And like, I'm aware that they have you know, it's a different population than the other, the the other studies have been overwhelmingly like white. The participants have almost all been white and even more so than in like the average experimental study, for instance. Mm -hmm. And the, the populations being served in that trial, if I'm correct, are like, you know, some of them are, it's like puts them in a hard place to take a couple days off of work to go for the treatment and they may need to pay for childcare. And so like this extra support that might be needed for them hasn't been able to come through. Like the funding for that hasn't been approved. And it's just kind of like so many barriers to um, underserved populations. Anyhow, that's what was on Saturday and Sunday now. First talk was by Bette Williams, The Wild Kindness Between Sacred and Secular in the New Mushroom Underground. And she read from her book. Um, She has grown mushrooms in New Mexico and just like had some amazing um, experiences in doing that. The next one was Annie Oak. Do you know her? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Building Risk Reduction and Community Safety Systems in Festival Environments. Mm -hmm. It was very good. 
Yeah. Um, she's she's a genius at that stuff. It's really amazing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I was doing some serious consulting with her afterward. Um, psychedelic justice exploring the intersections of healing liberation and social change that was jay sevelius um, who's a professor at the center for excellence for transgender health uh, department of medicine at ucsf and then my friend don gave a talk on peyote habitat loss and she was on the the podcast actually a few episodes ago um the globalization of ayahuasca was another talk. It was very critical of the globalization of ayahuasca, understandably, and was like huge. I, I started questioning um, ayahuasca consumption by white people a while ago, like especially after I went this year and wondering about the tourist economy that's being built around it, even in going to a very ethical center like I did, where they're giving all of their profits back to the local communities and like and funneling it into indigenous empowerment stuff, it's still kind of like, huh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fantastic question. Who did that one? That one was um, an anthropologist named, I'm not sure how to pronounce her first name, Evgenia Futio. She's from Greece, and I'm not sure where she works out of. And then the last one by... Ben de Loenen was the inner search for a better world, the challenging journey of integrating psychoactive plant practices into contemporary society. So mm. the, the like the Saturday talks were, you know, psychedelics are great. Look at these research results. They're really doing amazing things. Oh, ayahuasca, huge potential. MDMA. Great. So great. Um, and this is the potential and we need, you know, more, funding and support. And Sunday, it was being brought forth a lot of critique and criticism of capitalism and imperialism and colonization. And it was such like a wider, more circumspect look at psychedelics in general. Like, I think that it's like ironing your clothes on a sinking ship, basically, to be talking about how ayahuasca is effective for mental health when the rainforest is being like cut down completely to graze cattle. And no one's talking about the assassinations of media people down there. Anywho, this relates to the conflict conversation because I feel that the psychedelic community has splintered in many ways. And being that it's a small community in general, and the public is so interested in psychedelics, Michael Pollan being a huge voice in most people's interest of it, I'm concerned that um, people who are into the empirical research aren't going to have this consideration that is brought by this other side who's, you know, like, how has the psychedelic movement perpetuated like me too issues instead of solving them? You know, how has that response been? And so I feel like I want to learn more about conflict resolution because the, these two sides are not hearing each other. And, and I'm worried about what the effect of that will be, right? Like, like to continue not including the other one at the table. And then, like you said, protest or whatever, they will find a way to include themselves. And it's just like, why don't we all march forward together? These are, we purport to have shared values, but really, you know, is, is that how we're acting? I don't know. No. And I mean, I really appreciate this. And I was actually, yeah, just talking with someone else about some of these like, you know, similar themes and, and, and these themes come up in all sorts of ways. Like, you know, it makes me think, I mean, we can go all the way back to like Leary and Ramdas, you know, like having like a split on like, what are we going to do with this stuff, you know? And, um, but, you know, so this is something that's been in the community for a long time. And there's also just like, um, I finally learned the difference between epistemology and ontology, which is like, but there's like, 
you know, epistemology is like, what's the truth? What's the reality? Right. And ontology is like, how do we want to be? And like, and that's like a really interesting question, right? Because, and, and I feel like that's like a little bit of like what is happening here is like, what is the quality that we want to bring into this work with? Is like one question. And then like, what is the truth and the science and all the, the things behind it? And it's another question. And the thing is, they're both important, right? Like, it's not like we're going to choose one or the other. And I think that's like one of the first questions is that like part of like, like, getting to that place where you're going to include everyone in the conversation, where you're going to like include everyone in the process of figuring out how to go forward is begins with the affirmation that you already are in a relationship with each other. Like the fact that you are even having the conflict means that you're in a relationship with each other. Otherwise you just walk away from it. Right. Like, you know, like the, but now that they're bound up and then of course, like in this case, there's a kind of a common cause, right. Which is like, how can we have, these tools that are effective and useful and transformative, like how can we use them in a way that is positive and is creating a good impact on the world and, um, and, you know, is helping move people in a, in a positive direction. And so, yeah, we have to take in the themes of colonial colonialization and race and gender. And, you know, those are important. And, you know, the science is really important because it actually gives you a sense of what's really going on. Right. And so the, what happens then is like once you realize that you're already bound up with each other in that process, uh, then you shift to a new question, which is how can we do this better, right? Like how can we actually be in this conversation um, like more effectively? And a little bit is like there's a bit of experimentation. It's like, what if we try a little bit of this? What if we try that? But you have to still start with affirmation that you're bound up with each other. And then you can start having the conversation about what moving forward, you know, looks like. And which is actually an excellent segue into the third of the three rules of conflict. Like, which is that, like, the process and the outcome are the same thing. So when you, as soon as you, like, just notice that, wow, we have a situation here. We need to figure out how to talk about this. The choice of how you start having that conversation is actually, you've already begun like the outcome. Like you've already started crafting the new relationship. Is once you've admitted that you're like going to try to do something about it. And so the qualities that you bring to that conversation, then will become the qualities that you'll find in the outcome, right? So if you're like, we want to make sure that this process includes lots of different voices, that includes scientists, that includes people who have experimented, that include indigenous voices, that include women, include people of color, like we want to be inclusive in this conversation. We want to be inclusive of the people who are the visionaries. We want to be inclusive of the hard-headed scientists. You know, like we want to include all those voices. The outcome you're going to have now is going to be an outcome that includes all those voices, Right. And similarly, like we want to make sure that this is sustainable. We want to make sure that this is creating a positive impact in the world, whatever those values you infuse into the question. And, and actually, I would say that that becomes like one of the ways of unifying people is to try to find what is the question that we all can agree on? Like, what is the question that's a mystery for all of us or that engages all of our hearts? And so, you know, the question of being like, how can we, you know, like, how can there be an expansion of psychedelics in the world in a way that is healthy and has a positive impact? 
And now everyone's like, great. I want to put my science in that direction. I want to put my visionary words in that. I want to bring my feminist, um, you know, methodologies into that, right? And so now everyone's like on the we find the question that everyone can agree with is like a really great way of unifying people. And then, and then this is the part which is like leads kind of like what to I call the fourth of the three rules of conflict is there isn't going to be a final outcome. Like we're not going to get to the end of this. It's not like you're going to like write like the set of rules that sort out like all the answers to these questions and then everyone's going to be done. And then, you know, every time someone asks a new question about the ethics of, of psychedelics that someone goes, Oh, we already did a document on that. You can go read it. You know, like, you know, like someone's going to come up with a new question. There's going to be new, new things will come up and people are, I mean, people are even discovering new things still. I mean, it's like, you know, so these are going to be an ongoing question and it's going to ripple out forever and ever and ever. And so once you realize that you're going to be in this conversation forever and no one's ever going to win any of these debates, like no one's ever going to get to the end of this conversation. We don't want to get to the end of any of this actually, but whatever the end of life, it looks like, but I want to be there. So, you know, like, when, like, and so, and so then once you realize you're going to be again, like in it, now the question is, well, what's the quality we want to bring to this experience? How do we want to live through the experience of conflict that will never end? And people are like, it's really bad marketing, Duncan. Like, you know, like everyone, people want to get to the solution. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, like, I kind of like used to come up with a slogan for my like potential slogan for my business and be like, increasing le levels of adequacy because anyone who's trying to offer you a solution is a fucking liar. <laughs> you know, like, because it's like, it's, you know, it's like, I don't know. We're not going to, like, you know, it's like, we could do better. And we can do better and we can do better and we can do better and we can do better, but we're not going to get to like a final solution here. So <laughs> do you have any business? Yeah, nope. No, <laughs> uh, uh, no I mean, my, like my focus right now is, is really just trying to amplify this perspectives. And I'm doing that in a couple different ways. Um, one, I have my own podcast and so it's called Fractal Friends and we can talk about that more where I kind of use this lens of thinking to bring forward really amazing voices. And, um, I also like teach workshops that talk that I gave last year, like ended up unpacking into like these three, three workshops. I mean, there's a version of that talk that, that I also just give as that talk, but I now have it unpacked into three workshops. And, uh, and I also am like now, and reaching out to different communities and businesses and uh, to try to talk to them about how they can prepare for conflict, how they can sort of get into conflict in a way that is generative and positive and can actually capture all the voices. And so whether it's like a company that is trying to sort of move in the same direction and their team has different ideas on how to do that, or a movement that's trying to make change in the world and is trying to figure out how to do that, uh, all of these things are sources of conflict. I mean, like, and, and, and given that conflict is a fractal, it doesn't really matter how big the group is that conflict will always be there. Like, so even if you get a bunch of people who are like, we have the same cause, we're going to do, it was a, 
an organization that I'm about to start working with and they're a very like progressive cause. They're like trying to get as many, um, you know, progressive, uh, people into office, like straightforward goal. Like, let's do that. Guess what? Like, that group is ripping itself apart because the strategy is like, let's be radical or let's be more mainstream about it. And like, no, we can't do it that way. And, and some people are like, let's, let's make sure that we're all educated about anti-racism and white privilege before we like try to find people of color candidates. And other people are like, forget about that. We just got to get people in no matter what urgency, like forget trying to learn, let's just go. And so they're fighting and it's just, and it, and it like, you know, you can feel them sort of like pulling apart and that, and so even people who have the same cause that'll happen. And I think like what's interesting then is like how, as you sort of have pointed out how there's like factionalizing where people will kind of break apart, like that's something that's happening. And so like, how can you have that breaking apart be natural and like not so painful and not so angry, right? Like, you know, not so intense. And similarly, how, when you bring the people together that sort of have been apart for a long time and sort of have very different ideas about what's going on, like how can you actually get them to communicate with each other, hear what the other, like understand what the other perspective is without being threatened by the fact that it's so different, you know? And, and like, I mean, that becomes like, like those two directions is where that becomes really useful. So, So anyways, if any of you want to hire me, um, you can find me at DuncanAutry.com and you can sign up for a consultation right there on my website. Uh, and because, uh, yeah, what's really, because it's just really new. When I met you last year, I was like working for an organization. I was doing mediation and facilitation for people who just wanted to resolve conflicts, right? It's like, here's our problem. We just want to fix this problem and be done with it. And so my focus is really on like, I want to work with people who, recognize that they're in relationship and that they're going to be an ongoing relationship and are much more interested in designing like a new way of going forward. And, and like from there, like there's a lot of ways we can do that. If you need someone to resolve your conflict with your neighbor, there's mediators in your town, find them. They're there. They're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that there's, yeah, if, if you're just looking for a solution, then that you're going to end up with like three new problems by the time you're like halfway to the solution. And totally. so being more honest about the nature of human interaction and, and our collaborations like that it, they are living fluid things and what skills can we bring to that? It seems a lot more beneficial than, than just like looking for an end point. That seems kind of capitalistic even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you know, and like sometimes that's fair. I like, I, it's a fair solution to just like sort out the issue and be done with it. Like if you can walk away from a relationship that's not working out for you, like that's a fair solution, right? And sometimes going to court and making the person pay you back the money they owe you or something like that is fine. But like the win, win, lose like solutions, you just have to recognize that that's what they are. And that, and like, and it's something really, so people don't notice this, but there's something very intense about handing over control of your situation to um, a judge or like a bureaucratic process to like solve your problems. Like, um, and 
that does give you a sense of justice. It gives you a sense that there's like right and wrong and good guys and bad guys. And, you know, and like that's like f- feels good in a certain way. Maybe. But maybe, I mean, for a bit at least. But like handing like handing over your your control of whatever the situation you're in is like is is intense. And and I think like especially for this like like the community that's like a, most of your audience, like we don't actually want the government to decide who's right and wrong here, right? Like we like trying to institutionalize the rules here like might be tricky, you know? Um and like you you know and like the whole idea of sorting things into good guys and bad guys is 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 a lot and it's like to the degree that the community can actually keep the conflicts within the community because because basically like any kind of like mediation or facilitation or any conflict transformation process is affirming that we're going to figure out the solution to our problems with our people together right like we're going to do this here with the people who are involved like it takes it's a lot more responsibility but and it's and that's scary like people really are scared of that but it's you at least are empowered you know yeah and everyone who's affected can participate you know if you're aware that to include everyone who's affected then a collect a collaborative collective decision can be reached right um just noticing that everyone affected kind of like that might sound intense. So one of the other tricks about conflict being a fractal is that we can break it apart into smaller parts, right? Like we don't have to have a conversation with like tens of thousands of people, like, like the, the conflicts that are being met or people are struggling with on a, on a larger scale, like are also reflected in all sorts of smaller ones. And so you can just, you know, just remembering that, you can like break the conversations down and have a bunch of smaller conversations. You don't have to like try to have like everyone in the same conversation at once. Yeah. So you gave this amazing talk at Fractal Fest and then mm-hmm. what happened? Yeah. So let's talk about this. This kind of fits into this right and wrong question here. Jeez. <laughs> um, so I went on to Fractal Fest. It was really amazing. And to get there, I got a ride from like the rideshare group from Manhattan up into upstate New York. And, um, and, uh, yeah, by the way, it was like a really sweet event. It was really nice. <laughs> Anyways, Incredible. So, so much yeah, fun. I was like, yeah, it was like really, it's really neat to like see that community and like see how it was growing and it was fun to be there. But, um, when I was leaving the event, I am, uh, the car with my driver, we got pulled over like as soon as we left the event. And there was like quite a police presence as we were coming in. We saw people getting their cars emptied out in front of the festival. And so we were kind of conscious of like, oh, that's a lot going on here. And my driver, um, I'm going to like unpack his story too much, but my, my driver, um, uh, he, well, he wasn't totally innocent <laughs> and he felt really bad that uh, he like was like that he had this passenger and that he was getting in like getting in trouble with the police and so he gave up like the right to have our car searched and he and so the police like took us both out of the car and you know kind of like 
detained us there. Um, and I was sitting like on the hood of the car and he was brought to the back where the trunk was. And then they went through all of our stuff and every, every little nick and cranny of all of our bags. And they, um, found like some things of his and, you know, he was getting, facing some serious trouble. And they asked me like, how do you know this guy? And they go, I just met him on Thursday. I don't really know who he is. And, um, and, and they're like, well, good. Cause we're arresting a whole bunch of people tonight. And so, you know, we'll be nice to let you go. And they came up to me a couple times to ask if like, if certain things were mine. And, um, one thing that I had in my bag was a bag of vitamins. And it was like this bag, just a Ziploc baggie full of unmarked vitamins that I've been literally carrying around for months. It's like these vitamins that I take to sort of like help me like, um, with like my health and remain calm. It was like some homeopathic thing that my girlfriend recommended and, you know, and, and given the context, it was pretty sketchy looking bag of vitamins. Like I do recognize like a bunch of like, capsules, different colored powders in them. And so they decided that that looked suspicious enough to take us back to the police station. So I got arrested and we got arrested and like, um, did you tell them that those were vitamins? Yeah. So uh, yeah, actually I'm going to yeah, say a couple things about police pulling people over. Please. Um, yeah. So even though the driver was already, uh, suspected, um, cause they had sort of seen him at the festival. Um, that's, you can't pull a person over just because you suspect them. You have to pull them over for some sort of moving traffic violation. So the first option that could have happened there is he could have said, why are you pulling me over? And then they would have said, you didn't use your blinker or you were speeding or whatever. And then he could have, they could have like, basically he could have just said, fine, give me the speeding ticket and and they could have said we want to search your car and he's like no you can't and like and like they might not have been able to do anything else at that point unless they happen to have had a warrant and so he could have just said no um but the fact that he like felt guilty and then like acted guiltily and then like let them search the car let that happen and i just want to like point out that there was like a law from the supreme court just like two years ago called it was rodriguez versus the united states and um it says, so the, um, oh, which amendment is it? The fifth, sixth, sixth, fourth or sixth amendment? I'm not really sure, but uh, to the constitution that says that you can't be detained um, without proper probable cause, right? And so when a car, when a police pulls you over to give you a ticket, they have probable cause to give you a ticket for pulling you over because they saw you were speeding. But they can't, and this is what that court case says, is you can't detain someone for longer than it takes to do the thing that you pulled them over for, right? And so what happened to this guy, Rodriguez, a couple of years ago is he got pulled over for a speeding ticket and then they looked, looked in his car and like, you look really suspicious and we want to search your car. He said no. And they said, hold tight. Then they brought drug dogs and then they got the drug dogs to go around the car and then they said seems like you have drugs in there. And then they found a whole bunch of like methamphetamines or something like that. But he got released because it was illegal for them to hold him there until they found him committing a crime, right? So 
what the point of this is, the take home is, is that you like, y- like you don't have to like spend any more time than it takes for the reason when they pulled you over and they can't just hold on to you and try to find you breaking a crime. So that was the first thing. So the next thing that was the things you not supposed to talk to the police. And, um, I was talking cause I was feeling very innocent. Um, and I, and I was confident that I didn't have anything with me, but what was, um, but when I told them that the, what, what I had was vitamins, actually said it was vitamins and supplements. The police transcript says that I said that it was vitamins and something else. <laughs> and also I told them all what those vitamins were and that didn't make it into the police transcript, right? So I'm like, those are amino acids and this is like, you know, like, like, like I explained what the things were and that didn't make it into the transcript. And so the point is they're trying to prove that you're doing something wrong. Like that's like the whole point. And so not talking at all is like really important or at least not talking anything more than just to say your name and say that you're not going to consent to a search. So those are the mistakes that happened there. Um, we got taken back to the police station. They arrested 19 people at this festival. Uh, it was called the Fractal Fest 19. And there were about 10 of us in the police station, all of us like handcuffed to the walls, people crying and the police then had this test of like having to test all the drugs that they had recovered from like all these different cars of all the people they had arrested. And so the police were running around crazy, like testing, testing, testing. And, and the judge was downstairs. And so they were like really rushed and the judge had gotten out of bed. It's like one thirty in the morning. And so they're feeling really stressed out and they're like really slow typers, like one finger at a time, like, <laughs> right? But those reports and and they come up to me and they're like, okay, we know that you lied and those vitamins have MDMA in them, but can you tell us what the other drugs are so we don't have to like keep on testing them? And I'm like, okay, you're lying. <laughs> and like, no, <laughs> like told you the truth already. Nonetheless, you know, I got taken down to the court and they um, charged all of us and they saved me, quote unquote, the best for last. And they charged me for having 28 grams of MDMA which is a lot <laughs> more than I've ever seen. <laughs> it's a class two felony, which is like, it's like the second level of how much drugs you can have. Like after that, it's like pounds or something like that. And so I was like, oh my God, what just happened? You know, it was really, and um, I got taken to jail um, and I spent the next four days in jail in upstate New York. Um Jail was like really, it was really interesting. Um, you have to get medically tested for tuberculosis. And so you're kind of medically quarantined. So I was also like in solitary confinement for two days. And um, and there was no clock. There was no light. No light? I mean, there's no sunlight, you know. So the lights would just turn on and off in the morning and evening. So the only way I knew what time it was, was as I had a little handout and that was when food came, I knew that it was like more or less noon or nine or four or whatever time food was coming. Um, there was a book in the cell, so I had something to read and I was really grateful that I have a meditation practice and comfortable sitting and knew how to do yoga so I could like stretch and things, but it was crazy how much my heart like shut down, how much I just like stopped trusting anything. I barely even trusting myself, right? Like trying to figure out like maybe they're right. Like how is that possible? Like maybe, you know, and 
Um, like, so really even like stopped even trusting myself. Um, uh, eventually, um, I got moved into general population um, and that was like super surreal. It was like, so interesting to see how everyone was like divided up into their racial groups. And there was like kind of like the boss of each group who had like control of the remote control for the, one of the three televisions. And, um, and I was the first person from Fractal Fest to get there and they'd all been watching about us on the news. And so I was like this celebrity. They were like so excited. They're, like, who are you? Like, that's amazing. Like, are you guys like some sort of drug Car cartel and I'm like no <laughs> we're just a bunch of people at a party in the woods listening to music you know and like and I told them my story and they're like you're a liar or they're you know like and I'm like nope vitamins I'm here for vitamins and they're like that's crazy are you sure and I'm like I think so <laughs> and um, I one of the observations that I was just really intense for me was to feel how much my humanity got stripped away from me like immediately. Um, I, it, it was like, as soon as that happened, every discomfort, every bad situation, every hardness was, they treated me as though it was my fault. And they, I definitely was being treated as though I was like guilty. Um, you know, and I, that I was already guilty. And, and that was just like so intense, uh, to, to feel that. Um, and also it was also really intense to notice how confused the police and the guards were about this group of people that had gotten arrested because they were like mainly white people and, and they're like college educated and like, and they were just couldn't understand like, wow. And I heard them say things like, this doesn't seem like the regular thugs that we're usually arresting or like, you know, like we saw a woman here who like, she's in, you know, medical school. Like, why would she be dealing drugs? And I'm like, you guys don't understand what's going on here at all. Like, you know, it's, it's, and it was just really, it's just really interesting. Like to notice how like the people who kind of thought themselves as like the good guys, the guards, the people who are like on the right side of the law were just really assholes like it was really amazing just how unkind they were and how how much they felt justified in being unkind to all the people who were there and then the quote-unquote bad guys people who had broken the laws were like people who were on their best behavior like looking out for each other like being kind and being caring to each other it was like it was just it was like everything was backwards in that place and it was um and it just really helped me notice like like this is like one of the real problems with the drug war is, or, and, and really, I mean, just the way we think about our criminal justice system in general is that we somehow have this idea that people are going to be good or bad and that somehow these laws have anything to do with it. And, and like, and like, and also just noticing that like, you know, with the amount of like what they were charging me for, like I was like eight, 10 years of jail time, prison time I was facing with that. And, and then also knowing that that would be on my record forever. Like my ability to get jobs in the future, my ability to get housing. Um, uh, I think, you know, my right to vote, you know, like all of these things gone for the rest of my life. Right. Like, you know, and it's like, wow, I want to do like big things in this world. And to think that that could be like just taken away from me, like, even if I was guilty, like for having these substances that are like 
just altering people's consciousness that have like like basically like are non-toxic i mean like mdma is like a little tricky it's not like definitely some people have had some hard times with mdma but like like you know but like it's just like this is you know the right to have our own consciousness seems like it should be an important one and to fact that like even people would think that i'm a good guy or a bad guy and it was interesting like even as i got out and tried to like talk to my family about it and my father like it, it was interesting to hear how like other people were like, are you, wait, are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? And I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. Like this isn't, that's not what who's in and out of jail is about. And it's like, and it's also not that I've like always have been innocent. Like it's not like I've definitely broken some rules in my life, you know? And so like that does still doesn't make me a good guy or a bad guy. It's like, doesn't have anything to do with that. And it just was really, and so for me, like I kind of made this commitment while I was there that like, okay, I just got recruited into the drug war, like, you know, like as a soldier here and I'm going to raise some heck about this when I get out. Um, and then it took me actually quite a while to actually find out how to do that. Um, it was, it was about four more months until they finally tested the things and got me out and I, you know, got the charges dropped. Um, but um, it wasn't until just a couple months, a month or so ago that the prisoners from all over the United States went on a prison strike to talk about the conditions. And I was reading about it and I was like reading about what people were going through in prison and the inhumane conditions and like the way that people's humanity was getting taken away from them. And I just kind of lost my mind crying. I was just like, oh my God, like... I was like really sitting with that being a possible reality for me and, and that the privilege that I have to not be there in jail right now or prison to not be like facing inhumane circumstances to not have that on my record forever is an amazing privilege. But also the privilege that I have as like a white person who has a podcast who can be in front of the internet, who can like take the time to talk about this meant that I had to speak up about it. And so I ended up recording like a whole podcast episode that I called the prison strike and something else. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I thought that was clever anyways. And, uh, and, yeah, and so I talked about that and I told this whole story as a way to bring attention to the prison strike. And then I also interview Amani Sawari, who is the woman who's representing the the jailhouse lawyers speak, who is the people who organized the prison strike. Um, and again, this is like between August, September of 2018 that the strike happened. And they're asking for the right to vote and the right to be respected as humans. And it's a really important cause. And so if people are interested in following up with that, um, you can find information at fractalfriends.us. I put a lot, a lot of information about the drug war and the prison strike and prisoner rights. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's just, you know, and so, yeah, because before I was actually trying to figure out how to suppress this and how to hide from it and how to make sure that no one ever knows that this happened to me. And I was like, nope, I have to like make sure that the story's out, which is why I reached out to you. I was like, let's get on the podcast finally and, and they want to talk about this because people are still in there like in the drug war still has people locked up. And, and I think it's really worth also naming that there are people who are lots and lots and lots of people who are still in jail in places where marijuana has gotten legalized for marijuana charges, right? I mean, and more than half of the prison population is there for drug offenses um, in the US right now. 
And like, and the majority of those are just for possession, like not trying to sell it, just people having mind altering substances on them. And like, this is just not okay that, that, that it's not okay that that's happening, but it's specifically not okay that we're treating these people as like good people or bad people based on this kind of things. Like Graham Hancock said, it's a war on consciousness. It's not a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that talk was really meaningful to me. Yeah. Years ago. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a Ted talk. Everyone. It's one of the banned Ted talks out there. You can check it out. I'll put yeah. it in the show notes. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Oh man. Um, yeah. It was just so, it's like, it's just so interesting because like, like it, it was like such a, It was so intense to feel like that going and giving that talk and like um, bringing like so much joy and brightness and felt like a debut for me. It was like really um, like a huge opening in my life. And then to be thrown in like a cage, like literally the next day was so intense and it was so intense to, I didn't really ever think about how much that impacted me until recently. Like, like, you know, the fact that I got away from it all and it worked out fine was, was awesome. But, um, it's really scary world out there. And there, you know, people from Fractal Fest are still in jail, you know, they're still out there. Um, yeah. I think that as psychedelic research moves onward, there is, there should be a study on um, trauma interventions for people coming out of incarceration mm-hmm. and wow. integration programs. Like, well, t- to get my permaculture design certificate, I had to do like a design a proposal with a group. And our proposal was for um, like sort of a halfway house of folks coming out of prolonged incarceration. And it was the permaculture center and it had like, you know, it, they did had a food forest for the community to eat from. And they had, I don't know, there's like, everyone had their own room. Like we made sure like people had different, um, you know, access to like getting back their agency and their sense of autonomy. And yet it was community centered and there was like a mentorship and blah, blah, blah. I, I just think that like the conflict, there's no like solution. It's actually like a working process of integrating people back from quote corrections Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, like, that's one of the things that really got me too. And there's a big part of the prison strike uh, demands. Um, and to hold, again, check those out again, spactalfriends.us. Not, I'm not tr- trying to promote myself. It's just check it out. It's like really cool to hear the demands. I'm trying to promote um, you. Yeah. Oh, I'm promoting myself too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, other, there's some great episodes. There's one about Zendo that's out there. Recent one with El Suchi is really amazing. He's an amazing DJ producer. Um, those are some good episodes for for your audience in particular. And the one with Ryan Beauregard, who manages Zendo, and the Psychedelic Crime Reduction uh, Group is a really cool episode too. And uh, anyways, but okay, enough of the promotion. Like one of the things that they really talk about is the like the like there's not really a path towards rehabilitation. Like the, first of all, that's not even 
in our culture. We call it the Department of Corrections, but like we actually don't really have a sense of that, that we sort of, someone's a convicted criminal, we kind of just think they're bad forever. And so without having a sense, like taking away someone's freedom for eight to 10 years, like that should be punishment enough. But the fact that then they're trying to make the system be as cruel or inhumane and sort of difficult and painful and making them do hard work is like really intense. But then there's also since the seventies, they've like taken away the whole idea of rehabilitation programs that there used to be tons and tons of rehabilitation that that was the concept. But then presidencies and all the politics basically were like, we're going to get tough on crime. And that became like the rally cry for both Democrats and Republicans. You know, Clinton very famously, it was sort of the next one to like really bring that into the Democratic Party. And then that's just been like the rule of since ever since. And since that time, you can see the rate, prison rate, like just shoot up just like exponentially um, amount of people who are in prison. And also recidivism has gone up um, like 70 percent or like, sorry, again, this number is in my website, but like a huge percentage of the population who people who go to jail go back to jail. Right. And 45 percent go back within a year. Like and so like the fact that we're like not giving people the skills and we're not helping them heal. I mean, there's total crazy opportunity where you have people in one place who have done something that society has said is not OK. Like what a great opportunity to like help those people like change and grow and transform. But to say that people can't grow and change is um, like, that's not just something we're talking about prisoners. Like we're saying that about ourselves too, you know, like it's like if I've made a mistake and, and there's legitimate, mis- I mean, there's legitimate ways you can do wrong thing. I mean, like we can, you, know, you can do things that are like, like, okay, you need to be punished for that. Like, it's not okay. It's, I mean, there's things that people can do. But to say that people can't be redeemed, and like one of the demands, for example, violent offenders specifically are not included in rehabilitation work, right? Like if you're a violent offender, you can't actually try to be rehabilitated. It's not, not even an option you have. Like, and so like that, like that's a serious problem because if we're saying that one mistake means you're wrong forever, like, like it's not just like that's true for prisoners, that's true for everyone, right? And like, I want to know that I can grow. I want to know that I can change. And I want to know that I can become a better person. And if I believe that for myself, then I have to believe that that's true for you. Right? Like, yeah. And this comes back to conflict too, right? And it's like, yeah. Well, and the pr- the prisons are for profit. I think this is a hu- like huge <sighs> systemic problem. Jeez. Right? Like just the fact, exactly. There's someone out there who's financially benefiting like and again a corporation means that they are legally obligated to continue making a profit like that's what it means to be an incorporated business right and it's like you have to make money for your shareholders that's like your job you can't not right so you have to make a profit and if you have to make a profit and you're making money off of people being in prison like then you need people to keep arresting people right and so oftentimes these corporations and like Marriott's one of them and definitely big, big companies like run prisons, like you, like they have to, sometimes they'll arrange quotas with the local police. So they'll say, you have to keep our prison full at 80%. And so if they like, oh, 
looks like not enough people are committing crimes. We're going to have to go make more crimes, you know, or find more criminal. You know, like, it's just like, we're going to have to go like, like, like they actually have an obligation to go ruin more people's lives. Right. Right. Like, and, and the think, the labor yeah. too, the prison labor and how the economy rests on that. Yeah. So, right. And this is, I think that's something that's like, I, a lot of people don't know this, but like the, so prisons basically are run on the labor of the prisoners, right? Like that's really important. And that was why the strike was kind of intense because it was like basically like if the people stop working, if the prisoners stop working, the prison can't run anymore and there's no one to do that work, right? So that's like, you know, that was why having a boycott and a prison strike was like potentially effective. But um, what people don't know is, a lot of people don't know is that prisoners... Um, basically aren't getting paid for their labor. And this is part of the 13th Amendment of the United States. And if people know their history, the 13th Amendment was the one that ended slavery. And so at the end of the Civil War, they made the 13th Amendment, and it says that slavery and indentured servitude are not permitted unless someone has been convicted of a crime. And then slavery and indentured servitude are fine. It doesn't actually say that, that last sentence, but that's what it means, right? And and so prison slavery is like a serious issue. So one of the guys that I know from Fractal Fest, who I still am a pen pal with, um, he is um, he is getting paid eighteen cents an hour, and the prison is taking forty percent of that to pay for the fees of incarcerating him. And, and and there's specifically a problem that's going on on the East Coast, which is like you um, have to pay for your own incarceration. They don't, the city, the state doesn't actually have enough money f to pay for your incarceration. So you have to pay for it. And if you can't pay for it because you have a job that's paying you 10 cents an hour, you incur debt. There are people uh. getting out of prison right now Thirty one hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, like which they can't get like a driver's license until they pay off their debt, right? <clears throat> like so, like just imagine this. Like it's like go to grad school, you get a master's degree in like you know uh, psychology or you know sociology or something like that. And it's like a job you're not sure if you're going to figure out how to ever pay back the hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that you just incurred, right? It's like intense struggling to pay off the debt for your amazing education that you just got come out of prison and you now have to pay a hundred thousand dollars with the debt off you know before you can like really be part of society and then you also can't get a job because you're a convicted felon like that's like and you can't get housing and you can't, you know, you lost all of your family and your connections because you haven't seen anyone for 10 years. And plus the world thinks you're a bad person. And like, uh, for me, like the hopelessness of that is like, oh man, I'm going to go back to prison. Like, I, I mean, I can't just, it, it, this is like something I only just learned about just in the last month. And I was just like, dry. it's crazy to think about the fact that people are coming out of prison with debt, tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. Yeah. No, I know. I've had... <laughs> One of my best friends was incarcerated and I know another person who got locked up similar situation to yours, but w it was a little bit more guilty than you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jeez. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, so I understand people can find more about this on your website and can check out your podcast for episodes going into this a bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. I like to ask my guests on the show what they do for their consciousness. What's your consciousness hack or whatever? What have you been into lately that relates to your practice of consciousness? I don't know if you have anything to share. Mm, Consciousness hack. Hmm. No, this is the right one. I can feel like the emotion of it even. Um, my my focus lately has been on self-compassion. And, um, and you know, because in my consciousness, I have, you know, versions of myself. I have like past selves. And then I also have like all sorts of voices that are wanting to say certain things. Part of me that say that I'm not worthy. Part of me that say that I can't do things or that I'm messing up. Um, and so, you know, trying to find compassion for the parts of me that are critical of myself has been like a really important thing, right? And just like letting myself, um, not only be kind to the part of me that I'm, that I've w- I'm tempted to criticize, right? The part of me that maybe is, you know, not totally doing anything the way I want to be doing it, but also finding a way to be kind to the part of me that is, criticizing myself, right? Like from being like, you know, kind of recognizing that part of me that's like trying to say that I'm messing up, like listening to that voice and saying, I hear you and I really appreciate, you know, like you're trying to take care of me and, um, you know, like you can chill out a little bit, you know, I got this. And then it's fun to even try to figure out how to be compassionate to the part of me that's being compassionate to myself because that's like hard work, you know? And then, um, but, um, and then just like lately though, I've like even like come more into that and noticing that it's not just finding compassion for the part of me that have made mistakes, but like the part of me in real time that is struggling with whatever issue I'm struggling with, right? Like the part of me that's just like, how can I have compassion for myself right now? Like as I'm talking to you and I'm wondering, like, am I using the right words? Am I like saying it well? So, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm just like, how can I just like sit there and just be like kind to myself in that? And, and that is like connected a little bit to also just noticing, noticing the part of myself that is like just me beyond the story. Right. Um, actually it was at this like workshop uh, about, gender and we were like invited as as a men's workshop led by a woman which is like really cool and 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 so we're all these men and she asked us to like walk around and like walk around like we were like the archetype of masculinity and so we were like our chests are puffed out we're like sizing everyone up and we're trying to show that we like got it under control macho and all that and then she's like now walk through the space like the archetype of femininity and like we start flowing and it's kind of just like I don't know, maybe we're demure, just like in a more sweeter way of being as we like move through the space. And then she said, like, walk through the space like you're yourself. I feel emotional just talking about it right now. Like, it was just like, it was like I got to meet someone who I hadn't met before. Like, just to like be there just with myself. And like to sit there and just really feel like, Oh, wow. Oh, I like this guy. And also, where is this guy most of the time? 
And where I am most of the time is like trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing, trying to figure out who I want to be, trying to like avoid making the mistakes I've made in the past. And so as I like come back to that, that self and I, and I almost can't do it while I'm talking. I actually have to just like stop, you know, like actually I can like it, because the words take me already away from the present, you know? And so as I'm like finding that person and then noticing that I'm straying away from that person, like that's where that compassion comes in. It's like, how can I just like recognize, oh God, I'm in the story again. Or like, oh my gosh, you know, like I'm, you know, doing something, I'm playing out my gender role and playing out my gender, non-gender fighting my gender role. Like I'm doing the thing, you know, like, What if I'm just here? Have you ever heard of Marion Woodman? Mm-mm. She uh, is a somatic experiencing person, theorist, I think. And she said that the secret of life is not to transcend ourselves, but to learn to move into ourselves. It made me think about that. Yeah. This is like, yeah, transcending gender norms and expectations of society. It's like, actually, what does it look like to like go into, you know, who we are? And we, we wear masks even with ourselves, our, our personas, <clears throat> you know, it's something that I think as we move towards death, maybe in that moment of death, we realize like, what were the layers that aren't us that we picked up and. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we'll like we'll like yeah we'll find like we'll find the like that moment that that self either there at that last minute or anytime we want again it's and 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 then we have to do it again and again you know it's not like we get to like i mean even if we drop into ourselves or even if we transcend ourselves like like that's not a, like a, a fixed state like you know we have to like it's a practice you know I have a friend who I just met recently who was talking about how like practicing anything is actually just practicing practicing <laughs> because anything that we can practice and then get better at that just then just opens the door to a new challenge, a new thing that we need to practice. And so we're actually just like practicing coming back again and again to practicing. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is so wonderful. Thank you. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com.